All right, we're going to get started in about 20 seconds. Last one of the day. And I have one tomorrow. They didn't balance it out at all, like four today and one tomorrow. Um, so we're going to get into this one. This one is um, uh, probably one of, the, one of the more kind of heavy ones of all of them. This is really kind of the climax of the whole thing. So um, this one is entitled Choosing Revolution. Um, and our scripture for this one comes from 1 John chapter 4. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And our message for this last session for today, Prophecy and Social Justice, Part 4, Choosing Revolution. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study further into your word and look at these issues. Lord, even though the day is late now, we still want your Holy Spirit here. Linger with us longer, Father. Lord, lead us into truth. Help us, Lord, to, to learn these lessons and take them back. And Lord, most importantly, help us to use them to lift Jesus Christ up. That the world might see his love above all the hatred and, and anger in this world. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we go to the book of John, the 13th chapter. And we are going to look at um, the story of Judas. Um, John 13 and verse 21 says this. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Y'all know who that is, right? John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him. So Peter reaches over to John, waves signals to John. Hey, figure out who's he talking about. That he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. So they're laying, and the way that it was that the table was laid down, they kind of laid and laid back. And so when it says one of them was in his bosom, it's because the way that they laid, you know, you'd lay around like in a, like in a dial. And so one of them would be laying right in front of Jesus, right, um, right on, like shoulder down, right, uh, elbow down, right in front of him. Peter reaches, uh, reaches over to John, or signals to John, I should say, find out who Jesus is talking about. He then lying on, G on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? So John asks Jesus, who is it? Jesus tells John who it is. He says, to whom I shall give a sop, whom I have dipped it. He says, um, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And this is how you find out who is going to betray Jesus if you're one of the disciples. Here's verse 27. And after the sop, Satan sent entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Once Jesus was there with him, washed his feet, treated Judas kindly, had broken bread with him. Jesus showed Judas all of this love. He points out who it is. Judas must have known in the moment 
Christ had figured out what Judas was up to. And Jesus does this, and as Judas refuses to redirect his behavior, instead of fighting for God, or fighting, you know, against the devil, he fights against God in not uh, reverting on what he's going to do. He opens himself up. The Bible says Satan enters into Judas. Can you imagine? So at the table are the 12 disciples and Jesus and Satan. I'm going to say that again. At the table are the 12 disciples and Jesus and Satan. And let me tell you something. There are a lot of people go to church and they don't like what happens in church. And they, you know, get real mad at church and church folk. I want to submit to you. If Satan was at this table, Satan can be in your church. And that is the parable of the wheat and tears. A lot of people get mad at people. This social justice thing, a lot of people say, listen, I don't like church because church people are this and church people are that and church people do this and they said that and you don't realize, once again, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. That the devil could enter Judas in Jesus' presence. He can come into your church. And leaving church doesn't mean you left Satan. It only means you left Jesus. So a lot of folk run out of church. Well, those church people are so terrible. And where did you go after that? Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Here it is, right? So... Jesus is looking, the, the, the disciples, Jesus was so busy working the work of helping the poor, doing the work of true social justice work, that even when Judas is going to betray him, and the disciples really liked Judas. I don't know if you guys know that. If you read the Desire of Ages, they actually really liked Judas. They thought he was the most polished, most sensible one. They really want, in fact, Sister White says that it was the disciples, the other disciples that kind of pushed Judas into the circle for Jesus to choose because they're so impressed with him. So they didn't want to believe that he was the betrayer. So they they actually thought, hey, he must be going to do something for Jesus. Now look at what it says here. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was what? And it was night. Anytime you allow Satan to take control of you, and you leave the space where Christ is ministering to you, you leave and go into night. Not physical night, even though it was physical night, you go into spiritual night. Judas went into spiritual night. Here's what the Desire of Ages, page 70 says. From that time, he expressed doubts and confused the disciples. This is not from that night. This is earlier in the, this is on the chapter on Judas. He introduced controversies and misleading sentiments, repeating the arguments urged by the scribes and Pharisees against the claims of Christ. All the little and large troubles and crosses, the difficulties and the apparent hindrances to the advancement of the gospel, Judas interpreted as evidences against its truthfulness. You see that? 
He, could, he would introduce texts of scripture that had no connection with the truths Christ was presenting. These texts separated from their connection, perplexed the disciples, and increased the discouragement that was constantly pressing upon them. Yet all this was done by Judas in such a way as to make it appear that he was conscientious. What Judas did is what many folk are doing in your churches right now. Trying to find passages of scripture, trying to find where the church is inefficient, trying to find where the church is not productive, and in a way that seems like they care about the church, they are literally doing the work of the enemy. Let me tell you something, you got to be prayed up, you got to be read up, you got to be wrapped up in Jesus Christ, because you've got to be willing to go into church and understand that the great battleground of the great controversy is not in the streets. The great battleground of the great controversy is in the church. And ultimately, the great battlefield of the great controversy is in the hearts and minds of the individuals. The church is supposed to be a barracks. It's supposed to be where you go to recharge, to go back in the world and fight the good fight of faith. But the problem with a lot of our churches is that there is more fighting going on in the barracks than in the streets. Let me tell you something, if the church is divided, and this is not part of the talk, but somebody needs to hear it. If the church is divided, it loses its spiritual power. In Mark chapter 9, when the nine disciples do not go up into the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and a man comes with his child and says, hey, um, you know, help heal my son who has these, these, these fits and, 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 and is possessed by this demon, they could not cast him out. Why? Because they were so envious, so jealous, so divided, because Christ took three and left the nine. If the church is going to see, succeed, it must be united. Pentecost, they were on one accord. This is why I say, listen, this issue, and it was so interesting over the last three years. You watched and the pandemic hit. Most everybody kind of united, right? All of a sudden, everybody said, hey, we are in this. This is a sign of the end. Then that summer, George Floyd died. Then you watched the church on the issues of race. Politics crept in. The next year, the vaccines came up. The church broke again, right? Now there's war in the Middle East. The church is breaking again. The devil can just raise up stuff and the church just starts to fall apart. But as the church falls apart, it becomes spiritually powerless. And while the disciples were searching for evidence to confirm the words of the great teacher, Judas would lead them almost imperceptibly on another track. Thus, in a various, in a very religious an apparently wise way, he was presenting matters in a different light from that in which Jesus had given them and attaching to his words a meaning that he had not conveyed. His suggestions were constantly exciting and ambitious desire for temporal preferment and thus turning the disciples from the important things they should have considered. The, 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 the dissension as to which of them should be greatest was generally excited by who? Judas. You know Why? Judas believed the same lie that many evangelicals believe today. They believe that Jesus has got to come and rule on earth now. Right? This whole move, when, when Trump moved the, the, um, he moved the um, embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, um, we have relatives who, within a short matter, flew to Israel to help build the third temple. I said, man, you're going to go over, way over there to build a temple? Why? Let me ask you this, and I talk about this in my last day event series that, um, that, I'm, that I'm fi- just finished up last Sabbath. 
if there's a temple in heaven, according to Revelation, which is clear there is, and the book of Hebrews, why do you need a third one here? What's this one going to do if Jesus is in that one? There's no need for this one. Judas convinced them that you wanted to be first here on earth. You needed a position here because Jesus is going to take over as, as, as David. He's going to be king. And everybody then wanted to be vice president. And because of that, they started to infight. And it really weakened. That's why many, they were not ready for his death. That's why when he was, Peter said, oh, you know, Lord, I'll go all the way to death with you. I'll fight with you. Blah, 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 blah. Until he had time to go to death with him. And a little girl called him out and he started carrying on, cussing and swearing to prove he wasn't who he was. It's the same thing now. The Judases of this day and the social justice movements of our day want you to think that whatever's going to happen is going to happen down here. And this leads people to think, you know, I got to have a higher position than other people. When Jesus presented to the rich young ruler the condition of discipleship, Judas was displeased. He thought that a mistake had been made. If such men as this ruler could be connected with the believers, they would help sustain Christ's cause. If Judas were only received as a counselor, he thought, he could suggest many plans for the advantage of the little church. His principles and methods would differ somewhat from Christ, but in these things he thought himself wiser than Christ. I was in a discussion with a young person the other day. Very activist, goes to one of the Ivy League schools. And she said, listen, I can't believe the entire Bible because of these verses about slavery. I said, you don't even understand the context of what was being said in the Old Testament when it's talking about slavery. You're not reading what the New Testament says about things. You focus on these things. And because of this mindset that you have today, this, you know, when people say, use the word woke, this mindset that you have, you think that you figured this all out. I said, you think you're smarter than God. I said, and you know who, who thought they were smarter than God? Lucifer. I said, you have literally taken Lucifer's side. And that, that didn't, she didn't like that. But it's the truth. You think you know better than God. That's what Lucifer thought. That's why there was a war in heaven. All that Christ said to his disciples, there was something with which in heart Judas disagreed. Under his influence, the leaven of dis disaffection was fast doing its work. The disciples did not see the real agency in all this, but Jesus saw that Satan was communicating his attributes to Judas and thus opening up a channel through which to influence the other disciples. This, a year before the betrayal, Christ de declared, have not I chosen you twelve, he said, and one of you is a devil. Jesus knew the whole time who Judas was. And here's what's incredible about that. He never treated him any differently. Jesus was patient with Judas. It grieved Jesus that Judas was lost. If you don't get that, you don't really understand Jesus. Jesus never, he never relished the idea that Judas went out and hung himself. Never relished the idea that Judas was deceived and that he was lost. In fact, you think about it, it it's after Judas is out of, the, out of the picture that the disciples actually begin to get some sense. That was the effect of what happened. And the way that Judas worked, is, and what Ellen White is describing to us is, he was looking to fracture the disciples. 
break them into pieces, have them at odds with each other, because through that, Judas could control and, and move the disciples the way he wanted to. Another great book that I read is this one. This one is um, How Civil War Starts by Barbara Walter. Um, brilliant book. Um, if you've not read it, it's a great book on how, and, and, she's, and she's, she's not a conservative, she's more of a liberal, but she outlines perfectly how civil wars start. And she gives you the examples of history. And she, basically, one of the key tenets is that what you have to do to have a civil war begin is you have to fractionalize a society. You get what I'm saying? In other words, you've got to get a society to break into pieces and turn on itself. When you look at what happened in Rwanda, Rwandans are some of the most beautiful, loving people I've ever met when I meet Rwandans. Beautiful people. I can't understand how what happened in Rwanda. Those of you who don't know, there was a genocide in Rwanda. But what happened is that there, it was, and I believe it was demonic forces working to convince one tribe to attack the other tribe. And what they do is they begin, just like Hitler did, Hitler made pictures of Jews with, with big noses and said, we must remove these rats from Germany. In Rwanda, they made one tribe, drew them like cockroaches and said, we must get rid of these cockroaches. And I mean, you go all through history. This is what people do. They fractionalize, you generalize, you dehumanize. And when you can do that, you can do anything to someone. That's how civil wars start. You can break a society up into pieces. And so somebody asked the question, how do you know, someone came to me asking me during the break, how do you know which movements are movements you can follow and which ones aren't? One of the signs is a movement that we can follow as Christians is one that seeks to restore, to rebuild, and to unify. When a, when, a, when, a, when, a, when a movement says, listen, no, we, we, you know, there's, we, we, we are not going to have any um, reconciliation. We're going to have no forgiveness and no reconciliation. That's not a movement you should follow. A real movement says, listen, we are going to come back together because a real movement understands that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And if you don't get it, and that's one of the problems I have with a lot of social justice movements now, there's no reconciliation. Right? You can't tell a child in school that he's an oppressor or a colonizer simply because he's white. Just like you can't tell a black child he's going to be a criminal or a basketball player just because he's black. And yet, that's the kind of thinking we have now. This group of people, they're all this. You fractionalize. And you're not looking to unify. Well, that's one of the signs that you have about it. And that's the new generation of activists. And this girl has it on her shirt. It says, this ain't your mama's civil rights movement. Right? Bold. I'm not going to tell you, the civil rights movement was a Christian movement. They, and somebody, they're not hijacking the civil rights movement. They look to obliterate the civil rights movement. They don't want the terms and conditions of the civil rights movement where you sacrifice for the greater good. They want the world to sacrifice for them. And how did this happen? Well, in my talks, I talk a lot about the power of what evolution has done. And you, you convince the world that there is no God. And all of a sudden, there is no purpose. If there's no God. Is there really any purpose? Does it matter what happens if any of us, if, you know, like the French Revolution, they went to the, 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 the cemeteries and they put up, um, these are all in eternal sleep or whatever they put up. Like there's no ever coming back, right? Just like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh we talked about earlier, right? He said, preacher man, don't tell me heaven is under the earth. Right? They, 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 they want you to believe that there's nothing else. Well, that's what evolution teaches. This is what I was taught in public school. 
I remember bringing home to my mother a book, um, The Story of Evolution, and saying, Mom, bringing home to my mother, I was probably in like fifth grade, and brought it to my mother and said, Mom, this is how we came into existence. My Jamaican mother almost knocked me upside the head with a book. She didn't. She sat me down and started to teach me, went back to the Bible, what I learned in Sabbath school, because the, what I was learning in school was just so overwhelming. I would spend an hour in Sabbath school, an hour at night at home at worship. I spent five, six hours in school you see, you see, a day. You see what I'm saying? They had a lot of access to your, to your child's mind. And once you teach the child that they are really the, 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 the result of a primordial sludge, evolved from lower beings, um, that there really is no, nothing after this. It's just, well, one few things happen. And I, talk to you, I talk about it. Pleasure becomes the highest form of existence. It's just the dopaminergic pathways that they believe evolved in your brain to reinforce survival behaviors that ultimately survival is what matters. The survival of the fittest is, is only all about survival. And what is, how, how do you know what triggers survival and evolution is what causes pleasure along that dopaminergic brainwave. So then what makes sense? If that's all that matters and there's no heaven, no hell, no life afterwards, you might as well spend all every Saturday night in the club. You might as well drink and do cocaine and sleep with whoever walks by because that's all that matters. And what they've done by teaching our kids this, and this is one of the primary reasons for anxiety in kids. Did you know that? The sense that they have no purpose. I talk to so many kids now, they are drained. Kids aren't like kids when I was a kid. They, I mean, literally they come in, they're, they're sullen, they're upset. You know, some of them, they're mad because they come to see the doctor and their mother let, made them leave their tablet in the car. Or they can't, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're, just, they're just, just mad and angry and sad. And This is what the American Psychological Association says. Purpose in life, and they give this, this uh, other word for it, a Japanese word. A frontal lobe function is a natural and mentally healthy way to cope with stress. Here's the thing. We talked about stress earlier today. If the world takes from you purpose... It leaves you in a constant state of stress. When I get stressed out at work, I, I, I'm really happy to be able to go home, have worship with my family, and focus on eternal things. Because then I remember, eh, you know, these people at work are crazy, but eh, it's temporary. This isn't who I am. I have a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And you refocus, and you realize, no, nah, what God has for me, the world can't take from me. And you refocus and you feel better and you go back, and, and go back at it the next day. This is one of the reasons why Christians, you, you, have a, you live a better life because you, you can leave it at the foot of the cross. Right? I said this earlier, stress equals demands minus resources. What we're seeing as part of the social justice movement is that what they want to do is have the government be responsible for your demands and then give you false resources. I talked about marijuana. I could talk about alcohol. But one of the biggest ways that this is happening now as a physician and a preacher of the gospel is through sex. This is one of the major ways, and it ties into the social justice movement. It's basically, listen, if it's your thing, do what you want to do. Alistair Crowley said, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It's the occult Mixed in, it is 
this tantra sex magic stuff you're going to hear more and more about as this Eastern religion, as the churches and others have accepted yoga, the next level is tantra, sex magic. And Alistair Crowley talks about this in his books, that this thing is how you can get power from the enemy, from Satan himself. And this is what's going to creep into society. And it happens because, of course, part of this, this whole social justice movement is that there was a sexual revolution where women were liberated. And I've read books where they said, listen, women should be just as sexual creatures as men are. The Bible says you're supposed to both be able to live in a way that is pleasing to God. But what they did through Alistair Crowley, who who affected Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, who still has a sexology institute at uh, University of Indiana, Indiana University, um, and did some experiments that many people say should never have been uh, done on children in the area of sex, he then influenced people like Hugh Hefner and the Beatles, and you had this massive sexual revolution. And just like in the Bible, and you hear, I have sermons on this, just like when they were about to cross into the promised land, you remember um, it was, um, it was um, the false prophet and the king, Balaam and Balak, right? Balak was the king, and they, he said, I cursed them, and he couldn't curse them. Balaam used, taught him, listen, if you get the women to go and seduce the men, you can remove God's protection from them. And that's what happened. Just as they were about to enter the promised land, that's what happened. And guess what? We are at the borders of the heavenly promised land. So bam, all of these things begin to happen. It was freedom, right? The sexual revolution happened when, when automobiles came, so boys could pick girls up and drive off with them. Today it's social media and, and smartphones. Right? A new, another level of freedom. Your child can be in a room on all kinds of terrible websites and you have no idea. And parents think they can figure out what the kids are doing. Kids tell me that they have ways they can look at stuff and their parents don't find it. I have no idea how they do that. So they would trick me. Pornography goes mainstream. The French Revolution is one of the places where pornography actually became big. And in the school training, sex education, some of, the, some of the initiatives are actually anti-parent. Like, we don't want the parents involved to know what the kids are being taught or what they're doing at school. All of this is a part of this revolutionary state. And there's even now, they say, a new sexual revolution, this documentary on Netflix, Liberated, I've never seen it. But they say, listen, you know, and they, they keep thinking that somehow they've figured out something better than what God has. That's really what they're trying to do. And this goes back to what we said earlier, 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of what? Witchcraft. Of witchcraft. So you have a sexual revolution, a sexual rebellion, and it's like witchcraft. And here's the results. So just to give you another example, I did it with marijuana. Here's the result. They say, anxiety after sex is normal. Here's how to handle it. This is an article. That's not true. If you're... If you're in a loving married relationship, the way God says, and you're intimate with your partner, you should not get anxious. You see what I'm saying? They've got to normalize this stuff to make you think, because you, you, especially for those of you who raised in the church and know God, even if you just know him a little bit, and you know what you're doing is wrong, anxiety will come from it. That anxiety is your conscience. And what they're trying to tell you is, ah, you know, just ignore your conscience. Don't worry about it and do whatever you want to do. And so, they, you know, they, I, I think I said this earlier, in the, in the 1980s, 
When the AIDS epidemic jumped on the scene, they decided, listen, we can pour condoms into society. Everybody gets a whole bunch of condoms and we'll hand them out for free. You know, the health department have big buckets of them. You can go and get them for free everywhere. And if we do this, we'll get rid of sexually transmitted diseases and sexual health will improve. You know what? The more condoms they hand out, the worse the sexually transmitted diseases have gotten. And if you put them all on one graph, it just goes straight up. We're seeing chlamydia, uh, syphilis again. We have, the chlamydia dropped during those years, but chlamydia is very high. Gonorrhea is very high. We have drug, we have gonorrhea, we have, we're down to like one drug left that can treat gonorrhea. Did you all know that? It used to, we used to treat gonorrhea with penicillin. You give gonorrhea penicillin now, it's like giving it Tic Tacs. I don't do nothing. Right? We gave Rocephin 250 milligrams intramuscular. That used to treat it. During the pandemic, they said, nah, doesn't treat it anymore. You got to double the dose of Rocephin. And we're two steps away from a day coming when someone gets gonorrhea and there isn't an antibiotic to treat it. That's the result of the sexual revolution. Herpes. Herpes is everywhere. I say this all the time. You know, people come to me, you know, Doc, I'm going to Vegas. One, one doctor told me this. I'm going to, I'm going to Vegas. Um, have some Rocephin ready for me when I get back. He said, don't worry, Doc, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Not herpes, son. Herpes comes back with you. It, it, it stays with you, brother. It, herpes go with you to Vegas, New York, Jamaica, it'll travel around the world with you. And then it says this one. Casual sex generally leads to more positive emotional outcomes for men than women, the study finds. But look at this. Look at what the, it actually says. Women report significantly more regret loneliness and unhappiness than men in the wake of a hookup, according to a new research public, published in the journal Sexuality and Culture. The new findings also indicate that engaging in sexual sex and casual sex to cope with negative emotions tends to lead to negative emotional outcomes for both men and women. You know how many men, I, 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 I said this in one of my sermons recently, one of the guys, I saw a guy who was sleeping with all these women and he came in because he's having symptoms of, of, of um, sexually transmitted disease. This man, 23, 24-year-old guy, weeping and wailing in the office, crying. And I had to tell him, I said, yeah, man, look like, I think they caught you. They got you, brother. They, you know, this thing got you. But don't worry, we'll treat what we can treat. And we treated him. And I, and I, I said, listen, you, you know, he was talking about God and church, and I was talking, so we had a good conversation. And I reminded him of a statement I say a lot in my sermons. God made the human heart so big. Only he can fill it. You try and fill a God-sized hole in your heart with cocaine, marijuana, sex, won't fill the hole. Even getting married doesn't fill the hole. God must fill that hole. And these sexual revolution and drug revolution all tied to social justice in many different ways, they're not, they're not, they're not going to fill people. If we're really going to solve the, the, the problems that we're looking to solve, Jesus is ultimately the answer. So the big one, I won't get too into this, but pornography, I, I try to, pornography, these the secular people are now saying, listen, pornography is really bad for you. It, you know, it shows that pornography actually shrinks the brain, specifically the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe of the brain is where the seal of the living God goes. Did you know that? It says you have a seal in your forehead. And in Revelation 22, it says God's name is written in your forehead. That's because the frontal lobe, 33% of your brain, is where all of your character rests, your personality rests. 
And so pornography actually shrinks that part of the brain. It makes it, there's a whole backlash against pornography now online where all these young men in their 30s and 40s who are married and cannot be happy, happily married because they were raised on pornography and now they have a wife and it, it just doesn't work anymore because their minds have been destroyed and corrupted by fantasy. So the devil promises you happiness when you're 13, 14, sneaking in your room watching and looking at this stuff. But just all he's doing is planting a seed so that later on you actually never find joy. So I, as a warning, they, you know, they promise you liberty. That's what the scripture says. But that's not really what they're giving you. So as part of that, one of the things that you look at this and you realize is that spiritualism is a big part of a lot of this social justice movements. And this is really the crux of what I want to talk about. Some of these are presented before in different talks, but I want to pr- bring them all together in one place. One of the books is Revolutionary Witchcraft. I do not recommend you read this book. I don't want your pots to start floating around in your house. Um, but this is what it says. A fiery, inclusive guide for activists and witches alike. Revolutionary witchcraft is an empowered introduction to the history and practice of politically motivated magic. Did you know that there are people practicing magic and putting spells out there to get the political results they want? Did you know that? Well, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are people that when an election is happening, they are conjuring spirits to try and make the election go the way they want. I remember my good friend Adam Ramden is here presenting this, this weekend. Um, and I was, I was in England for one of my one trip speaking. And I, I was uh, at the union office, I think, doing worship for the pastors. And one of the pastors in London uh, said to me, listen, um, in, in, in England, in London, for every Christian pastor, there are 30 witches. And he said, on every weekend, the witches stay up all night praying for the destruction of the Christian churches. And here's the funny thing. How many people show up for prayer meeting at your church? We can't get, we, I mean, we get six people show up, we're lucky. The witches are praying. They show up for their prayer meeting. You know, you, we're busy, but I don't know what we're doing on Wednesday night, we can't come to church. But they show up. And let me tell you something, we will not see spiritual victory in our churches until our churches aren't praying just separately. But we're praying together. That is an important thing that has to have prayer must be put at the forefront because there are forces at work to destroy us. This is the Atlantic article, Why Witchcraft is on the Rise. America's interest in spell casting tends to wax as instability rises and trust in establishment ideas plummets. That's the French Revolution. You see it? Spelled out there. You take instability, the feudal system, the cost of economic um, instability in France. As that goes up, the trust in establishment, the nuclear family, the church, God, it goes down. Witchcraft comes in to fill the void. Hence, the fastest growing religion in America now, among young people, is Wicca and witchcraft. That's profound. And And of course, it the shows like Charmed, right? The shows like Charmed. The shows like um, 
uh, Harry Potter, and all these things are literally teaching young people to value and get into the dark arts. And how many parents put their children down in front of Disney? As witches run free and spells are made, and they tell your child to follow their heart. You know what the Bible says about your heart? It's desperately wicked. And who can know it? And they tell you, follow your heart. No. Teach a child to follow God, his word, and the spirit. And so this launch into spiritualism ties back into prophecy, like I said. This is the miracle working power that would happen in the last days. We're already seeing it manifest itself. There's a lot of things happening. This is another one, Witchcraft Activism, a toolkit. There's another book, a toolkit for magical resistance. It includes spells for social justice, civil rights, the environment, and more. Listen, I don't want to buy casting spells for my equality, please. Right? I, I, don't, want, I don't want the devil trying to work out my fix stuff for me. But this is, and I'm trying to show you that this is how serious this, these movements are. Because what they want to do is remove Jesus. Do you know that the most religious people in America, most Christian, not religious, the most Christian people in America are not white evangelical males? That is a misconception. You see it on CNN. You see them beat up white men. You know who the most Christian people in America are? Black women. Running away with it. And there is a movement afoot to destabilize the black church and have it collapse. That's why when Barack Obama became president, he went into black churches and told them, listen, you need to stop speaking against the LGBT community, Q community. All these things started happening. They, they wanted to bring it down. I was in a meeting with high-ranking officials when I worked in government, and I was on one of the committees um, with one of the former Surgeon Generals, and I was at a dinner, and some of the activists were speaking at another table, and I heard one of them say to the other, we must destroy the black church in America. We've got to stop them because they are speaking against X, Y, and Z. And you're seeing it. Right? I mean, Beyonce's song, Church Girl, I, I talk about it in some of my talks. Go read the lyrics to Church Girl. See her levitating in the picture. With black candles behind her. There is a, a movement afoot. And this picture right here is of all these black people who have moved out of church and now they're going, they, in order, in, you know, they, they want to shake off the patriarchy, they want to shake off the, uh, the, the colonialism and, and oppression of white America, and now, guess what they do? So they're going back to worshiping their ancestors, and so they've left the church to go back into animist religions. This is happening in America right now. They're teaching people to leave God and go back into these things. It's happening Faster than you would realize. And one of the ways they did this is, of course, the big one, the Black Panther, the movie. And here again, black people are so happy that Wakanda forever. I said, I, I want to ask someone, like, do you know where in Africa Wakanda is? There is no Wakanda. It's a, it's a, I said, they make a black superhero and he got to come from somewhere that don't exist. And you celebrating it. The point is, this is how they mix it in. It's this mix of voodoo, if you watch it, with ancestor worship, and that's where the powers come from. Sub-Saharan Africa is one of the most Christian parts of the entire planet, yet when they make up this country, 
There's no Christians. It's a statement of what they're trying to do. All in the name of social justice. We need to be represented on the screen. People celebrate. In fact, black churches bought out movie theaters. Even Adventist churches sold tickets to some of these movies. How do you take people to see a movie that teaches that when you're dead, you're not dead, and then how do you teach that person in Bible study the next week the, the, the doctrine of the state of the dead? Right? I mean, you, it's confusion. And all of it really comes from what is coming upon the earth. As the Black Lives Matter movement really got big, I want to you talk to you a little bit about Black Lives Matter. Because I think it represents a lot of what is dangerous about the modern social justice movement. Now, again, going back to the first talk, so if you guys came in late, you missed the first talk. So don't say what I said in this talk until you listen to the first talk. Agreed? Yeah, because you you're coming in late. So you gotta, you, you gotta catch, the, catch it in its totality, right? I talked a lot about all the injustices, and we'll talk more tomorrow about what the church needs to do. Injustice, we, you don't just ignore injustice because these folk have gotten involved in it. We, the church, have to lead in correcting injustice. And again, we actually have the solution, right? So Black Lives Matter and spiritualism is one of the things I have to talk about. So this is what um, one, the, the leaders were being interviewed, and one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, one of the three young ladies that started, said, we do have an ideologic frame. Myself and Alicia, in particular, are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm old school, old fashioned. When I was growing up, you didn't want to be a Marxist. I don't know. It was a bad thing. Not that I, I can't say I wanted to be anything particular, but I don't know. They didn't teach me in school, like, grow up and be a Marxist. Like, let's join the Soviet Union. When I was growing up, there was a war between us and them. And we won the war, ironically, because Marxism, it doesn't work. Fundamentally, if you, if you go at Marxism and communism, and the government says, listen, we're just going to feed everybody the same no matter how hard they work, guess what happens? People stop working. I'm not sure why they can't figure that one out up front. I mean, you pay some people in America, they still don't want to work. Never mind, you just say, listen, no matter what you do, you're getting the same five bags of rice, flour, and, 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 and gravy. I, you know, I don't understand. But, and I've been to communist countries, it doesn't work at all. And here, people now, even the Black Panther Party, you know how they raise their money? They would sell Mao Zedong's Red Book uh, at, on Berkeley's campus. This concept of Marxism being some liberating escape from America, especially targeting young people, and not just young black people, young white people. You got young white Americans who are able to go to these fancy schools because their parents have worked hard and have money, turn around and say, I want to be a Marxist. They would take your parents' money and give it to everybody else. And you'd have to sell your BMW with which you drive around handing out those flyers in, right? We are trained Marxists. What did Marx say? What was his thing. Here, look, this is from his poem, Human Pride. This is Karl Marx's poem, Human Pride. It says, with disdain, I will throw my gauntlet full in the face of the world and see the collapse of this pygmy giant whose fall will not stifle my ardor. Then will I wander godlike and victorious 
through the ruins of the world. And giving my words an act of force, I will feel equal to the creator. Who's that speaking, actually? Lucifer. And when is he speaking about? This is after the destruction of the world. This is what Luciferians teach. If you read um, the book by um, Roger Renault, this is literally what Luciferians teach. They teach that Lucifer is going to win. He's going to get the world. He li- this is literally what Marx is saying. Marx is a Luciferian. He was a high-ranking Mason. He was deep into the occult. So why would you want to be a Marxist? Unless that's really what you're into. So here he is. And, you know, I mean, literally, this is, he's talking about the devil. Then I will wander godlike and victorious. I'll feel equal to the creator. Who is the pygmy giant he's talking about? That's God. This is Mark. This is who these people are saying they study. And the name of his poem is Human Pride. I want you to remember the word pride. Watch this. This is what the Bible says. Ezekiel 16 and verse 49 says this. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. What's the number one sin of Sodom? Pride. Isn't that interesting? Number two, fullness of bread. Number three, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. And look at the fourth one. It's a social justice sin. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Some of the leaders of some of these organizations have become filthy rich. I mean, you've seen some of the scandals come about out of the houses they bought. And all that. I won't get into all that. Well, literally, little is being done for the very people that could be helping with all of that money. It's pride. Pride is that first and great sin. It is the sin of Satan. It is the sin of Lucifer. It is the sin of the day. And people are proud of their pride. Black Lives Matter is a spiritual movement, says co-founder Patrice Cullors. And this is pastors. You see, these are all black pastors raving their fists in, in, um, in the air as uh, Melina Abdullah, center-left co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, addresses the crowd during an interfaith memorial service for George Floyd on June 8, 2020. Interfaith. So you have pastors, Christian pastors down there, waving their fists with them. Here's what the article says. Abdullah and Colors touched on the practice of calling out the names of the victims they advocate for in protests and demonstrations. It's kind of like, it's kind of a way to do what? Invoke their spirits. I hope you're getting this. They're not just calling out the people's names because they're trying to have you remember their names. They're invoking their spirits. Look at this. Uplifting the names of the victims goes beyond creating hashtags, Color says. It is literally almost resurrecting a spirit so they can work through us to get the work that we need to get done. Are y'all getting this? See, I'm not going anywhere where spirit's going to show up. By highlighting their names, Color said she feels personally connected and responsible and accountable to them, both from deeply political place, but also from a deeply spiritual place. One of them actually calls on a Nigerian goddess to come and march with them. When it was the civil rights movement, it was Jesus that they called to march with them. It has changed. It's dark spiritualism. I wasn't raised with honoring ancestors, she says. As I got older and started to feel like I was missing something, ancestral worship became really important, she said. 
The women also touched on their tradition of praying and pouring libations during demonstrations, pouring out something what? For the dead. That's something we're not supposed to do. In a June 9th article, uh, The Fight for Black Lives is a Spiritual Movement, Heba Farag, Assistant Director of Research at USC Center for Religion and Culture, examined how Abdullah, a group of demonstrators, a ritual at a recent protest outside the mayor's house in Los Angeles. As a part of the ritual, people recited the names of those taken by state violence before their time. Look at this. Ancestors now being called back to animate their own justice. Yeah. So who, who are they going to animate? Not me. After each name, Abdullah poured libations on the ground as the group in return chanted Asay. The Aruba term is often used by practitioners of Ifa, a faith and divination system that originated in West Africa. Isn't that powerful? So now you got pastors out there while they're practicing basically what we used to call voodoo in the streets, calling up dead spirits. And here you have, and let me tell you, some of our own black Adventist churches closed down so they could go and march with these folk. And listen, there's a lot of white young people who are going because they feel guilty. They've been, you've been told you all kind of oppressor, so you go to march with them. Let me tell you something. This is not of God. We can reverse these things without joining up with Satan. The gospel, the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ will do more to reverse racism and its effects than ever could any of this. In fact, I would argue that this will make it worse by fractionating, as we talked about earlier. She goes on to say, Abdullah on Saturday said it took her almost a year before she realized Black Lives Matter was much more than a racial and social movement. At its core, it's a spiritual movement, she said. Color said it became clear to her they needed a spiritual protection. As Black Lives Matter was targeted by the right, by police, and by neo-Nazis, to color, she wouldn't be able to do this work without spiritual practice. It would be antithetical, she said. Now, let me tell you something. The same thing has happened on the, side, on the other side with white people. There's a move around Christian nationalism, Nazism, all these things, and guess what? The same spiritualism exists there. The swastika is actually a, a cult symbol. Right, so when you see people walk in the streets of America with swastikas, those are, that's a that's a just same occult system, just in reverse. Satan is stupid. On one hand, he'll have this group, and on the other hand, this group. But Satan is the same power working both sides. And I told you when I was in high school, and I had to deal with all the racial epithets and all that racial stuff. It is a dark spiritual component. The Ku Klux Klan burns crosses for a reason. You don't burn, you don't burn the cross if you're a Christian. It is a dark occult movement. That's why the head of the clan was called the dragon. There's a reason he was called the dragon. And I lived in a place where the clan was active when I got to Florida. I mean, you go down the wrong back road and they would still be out there burning. So I remember once when I was like 12 years old visiting my aunt in Homestead, Florida. And my cousin and I went to a party at the, at the armory. Back then, they would open up the armories and have parties for Canada. I, don't, I still don't understand that one. And we were there, they played the music, and we'd have, we had to run back home. So we were jogging back to the house. My cousin, Michael's a really good athlete, so he's running faster than me, and we're jogging, jogging. And as we're running down one of the roads, a black family gets out of one of them giant old Impalas or something, and goes into, and the father goes into the, into the, into the 7-Eleven, or whatever it was, and leaves the, the, the woman with all the children in the car, and a pickup truck pulls up, 
and they have a Milotov cocktail, light it. White dudes come out, throw this thing underneath the truck, underneath the car, and boom! The guy comes, the black guy comes running out of the store, screaming, worried that his family's gonna blow up in the car. Man, my my cousin wasn't an athlete then. I took off and left that brother. I was gone back to the house. So I can tell you, it is a dark spiritual place that would allow you to do something like that. It is the work of Satan, which is why you have to stay in Scripture. It's Scripture that teaches that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Once you remember that, you realize this person is not my enemy. I don't care what they look like. Satan wants you to look at what people look like. God says, the Scripture says in the book of Samuel, says, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at what? But you know how you get to know the other person's heart? It takes time. It takes time. I remember I was driving back to Huntsville when I was at Oakwood. And I was in the, earlier I talked about how I was into the black militancy. And I was driving back, trying to listen to Public Enemy. And my mother's old Oldsmobile wasn't worth 10 cents, that car. And I was trying to get over, up over one of the mountains in Georgia to come down the other side into Alabama or get close to Alabama. And the engine went out on me on the top of the hill. It was 12 o'clock at night. Pouring down rain. I'm in rural Georgia with my brother, two black dudes in a beat up old Oldsmobile with Florida tags. I said, Lord, I'm in trouble. Then a pickup truck pulls up behind me. Two white dudes, I can see them in the rear view. And I said, Oh, Lord, we're in trouble now. And those brothers, one of them gets out and comes and knocks on the glass. I told my brother, if anything happens, you get out that side and just run. The car was so messed up, I couldn't even wind on the windows. The electric windows, the car was all messed up. I had to open the door, rain pouring in. And the southern draw, he said, hey, man, pop the hood. Let me help you. All the years of my confusion, I was prejudiced. I assumed he was up to no good. If it wasn't for that dude, I would have never got back. We have to have more faith in God than we have fear of men. Or she can't be a Christian. Black Lives Matter removes page on nuclear family structure amid NFL vets criticism. One of the reasons a lot of people came out against them and they took the page down. They spoke against the patriarchy in a sense of men being in the house. So Black Lives Matter scrubbed a page on its website this week that disparaged the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Um, the group whose co-founder Patrice Cullors uh, described herself, a trained Marxist, removed a page titled What We Believe um, that included its public policy positions as well as describing itself as part of the global black family. Um, we just, and this is what it said. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Who's left out of that? Fathers. Did you see that? The page, which is no longer available, also said BLM aimed to dismantle the patriarchal practice that leads mothers to having to work double shifts to make ends meet, which is where the socialism kind of comes in. But they would argue men aren't necessary. Isn't that profound? Men aren't necessary. Now, this is to look at some data. Non-marital birth rates in the United States, as you can see here, if you look at, at um, the national line is here, America in general around the time of the sexual revolution, this thing took off, right? Um, if you look at um, non-white men here, like, like uh, 
If you follow this line going up here, right, this would be like black men. And you notice black families were overwhelmingly intact pre-civil rights movement. You see that? So sexual revolution happened. We bought lies of the new French revolution. And these are the numbers. I mean, it's bad for everybody. I mean, white families aren't as intact as they used to be either, right? Things have changed drastically. But what does this mean if you say, listen, take men out of the home? So here are children living with mothers only, right? White children are in red. Hispanic children are in green. Black children are in blue. So you can see that there's a rapid increase over time, a rapid change to black America no one seems to want to speak about. Why does that matter? Well, because we said poverty is the root of a lot of the social injustice. Well, here are married parents, right? Look at the rate of poverty in married home, homes. It's only about 10%. If they cohabitate but they're not married, it's almost 50%. This is, this is how God is hinting to you that his plan is the best plan. I hope you all getting this. This is, this is extra biblical evidence that what God says in his word is accurate. This is social science telling you, follow what God says. Here it is. So single mothers that are divorced, it's 30%, 45% for separated, almost 50% for those that are never married. You see that? But look at this. For single fathers, if the child grows up with their father, they actually have less of a chance at every level of growing up in poverty. And not, no parents present, obviously the numbers are pretty high. Why do I say that? Because one of the things that, we, that happened during the reforms that changed America was that we moved towards a welfare state. Now, let me be frank and honest. You would not have welfare in America if it wasn't for poor white people. Initially, when welfare came out, they showed pictures of white families in Appalachia, and they said, listen, we've got to have a welfare program. The welfare program took off, and then the welfare program spread. To this day, more white people are on welfare than black people. That's just a fact, because there's more white people per capita in the, you know, the larger percentage of the population. Ronald Reagan used to talk about the welfare queen who drove the Cadillac and had all these children. She never existed. It was a complete farce. Not true at all. But when I worked in the park system in Connecticut in the summers when I was in college, and I would, most of the, the kids that we got came out of single-family homes in those inner-city areas, and you'd sometimes have to take the kid home because he was in trouble, and I would talk to him and say, hey, you know, where's his father? You know, we want to talk to both of you. The mother would say, listen, in order for me to keep my welfare benefits... His father can't come around. If the social worker comes here and even sees male shoes, I can lose my benefits. We literally incentivized the destruction of the family. Goes back to what, you know, a lot of people argue this goes back to what Marxism would want. They want the government to be the one taking care of all these children. That is a profound thing because everything shows children do better with both of their parents. And this is, this is how these movements work to actually go again. It's like the French Revolution. You start with Louis XVI, you wind up with Napoleon. So finally, I'll finish with this for today. Many people say, listen, you know, it's, 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 we suffer so much, it's just not fair. And so that's where the spiritualism comes in. We've got to rectify the wrong no matter what. Here's what this great controversy says. Said the Savior to his, to his disciples, foreseeing the doubts that would press upon their souls in days of trial and darkness. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
Jesus suffered for us more than any of, any of his followers can be made to suffer through the cruelty of wicked men. Did you guys get that? Jesus suffered more than any of us will. He gave up more than any of us could ever give up. Spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen. This is education, page 228. Spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen demigods, that each mind will judge itself, that true knowledge places men above all law, that all sins committed are innocent, for whatever is, is, is right, and God doth not condemn. The basest of human beings, it represents as in heaven, and high, highly exalted there. Thus it declares to all men, it matters not what you do, live as you please, heaven is your home. Multitudes are thus led to believe that desire is the highest law. That's what I said after talking about no purpose. That license is liberty and that man is accountable only to himself. At the same time, anarchy is sweeping away all law, not only divine but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interest and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot, of bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Such are the influences to be met by the youth of today. To stand amidst such upheavals, they are now to lay the foundations of character. We'll end on this for today. Tomorrow we'll have the questions because we're out of time. But I want you to get that the work, Ellen White says, listen, it's character building is the greatest work ever entrusted to men. And why is that important? Because it takes integrity in a world of injustice, a world of confusion. It takes integrity to stay focused on Christ and not turn all anger and vitriol on your fellow man. This is our calling. Our calling isn't even just to stay right with God. It is to serve people who, are, who would seemingly be our enemies. That's the call of the church in the last days. To work with and for those who would otherwise be our enemies. That's the challenge we all go home to. And we work for our communities no matter who they are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word and to go through these issues on social justice. We pray now, Lord, that you seal us with the Holy Spirit. Help each of us, Lord, to be able to see the big picture that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's no political party that can save us, no political candidate that can bring the world back into peace and harmony. The only solution to this world's problems is Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the preaching of these three angels' messages. Help us, Father God, to be a part of it. It is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen. Amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioburst, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.